Good evening and welcome. We're glad that you're here tonight. We're going to be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, the passage that Trent read for us a moment ago. We invite you to turn and to study with us tonight as we look at this passage of Scripture. We're very grateful for the presence of each of you. We're thankful for another opportunity to come together. It looks to me like we, we are thin tonight by way of attendance. And so hopefully and prayerfully we will uh, have more folks come next week, next Sunday night. I don't know why we're down tonight, but it looks like to me we are. But I know that there are a lot of folks that are battling sickness, and so we want to keep them in our prayers. Tonight as we look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we are continuing our study of the key verses that we've been memorizing. And tonight, two foundational passages that underscore the fact that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And as we think about this book, this is the book of all books. Solomon talked about the making of books. There is no end. But when we talk about this book, it is elevated above every book. And the reason is because it comes to us from God. And so tonight I want to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to look at this lesson really, I think, in two different ways. First, I want to talk about the author of Scripture. And then secondly, the aim of Scripture. When we talk about the origin or the author of Scripture, Paul tells us in a very succinct way, listen to him, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The idea is in the original that God's Word is God-breathed. Now you remember Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1 in verse 21 that the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but he said holy men of God spoke as they were moved or borne along by the Holy Spirit. And so we're talking about God inspiring men to record this book that we call the Bible. There were some 40 different men that were used in the recording of the Old and New Testaments. And as you look at these 40 different books, what really stands out is the unifying theme throughout Scripture. The Old Testament is really pointing to the coming of the New Covenant, the New Testament, under which we now live. Somebody has said in the past, and I know that you're familiar with it, we've used it before, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And then the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so when you begin to look at Scripture, you, you think about the fact that there is this unifying theme. And really, it is a revelation of God's redemption of the human family. God sending His Son to save us through Jesus. Now, David was one of the writers in the Old Testament. We think about the Psalms that David wrote. We talked about one of the Psalms this morning. And David said in 2 Samuel chapter 23, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me. And then he said, his word was on my tongue. And there Peter emphasizing, or rather, rather David emphasizing the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write what he recorded in his day and time. And so I think about the inspiration of Scripture. But then there's another thing. Consider, if you would, the inerrancy of Scripture. And by that I simply mean that there are no errors with regard to the New Testament and the Old Testament. 
When we think about what has been recorded for us in the Old and New Testaments, what has been recorded is without error. It is infallible. I want you to think for a minute about what the psalmist said. In Psalm 119, 160, the entirety of your word is truth. Now Jesus said, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. And so the summation of God's word is truth. There are no errors, as I said just a moment ago. As a matter of fact, when you begin to investigate Scripture, what you'll find is fact after fact after fact. Matter of fact, I read, as a matter of fact, I read just recently an interesting statement about the book of Acts. It was recorded some years ago by Bruce Metzger, and Wayne Jackson had this to say. In the book of Acts, there are 32 countries identified, 54 cities, 9 Mediterranean islands, 95 different people spoken of in that one book, 62 of which are not mentioned by any other writer in the New Testament. The beauty of this is you can go back and investigate, and you can begin to trace the growth of the church and Thunder, I thought it was the microphone for a minute. <laughs> Caught me by surprise. But you can go back and investigate. And you can read about the various countries and cities and islands. You can trace the Apostle Paul and the other missionaries in the first century in their travels for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I think about Jesus Himself. You know, there are a lot of folks today that will disparage what has been recorded in the Old Testament. And they'll talk about the creation as myth. And some would say that what was written in Genesis is myth, but they would still want to claim an affinity for Jesus. In Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus was asked, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? You remember Jesus went back to creation, didn't he? He said, have you not read, He that made them in the beginning. We talk about the seven days of creation. Man was made in the image and the likeness of God. And, and so Jesus here placing His stamp of approval on the authenticity of the Old Testament. And then I think about in Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus identifies characters like Jonah the prophet. You remember Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. Well, Jesus speaks of that. Not only that, but he also talks about the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, who came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And so, with regard to the authenticity of what has been recorded in Scripture, well, the, the Bible is without error, isn't it? And then there is another thing I want to share with you. And that is that not only is the Scriptures, not only are the Scriptures inspired and inerrant, but they are immutable. In other words, they do not change. Now, think if you would about how cultures change from generation to generation. Think about how, how much our world has changed. And yet when we talk about the Word of God, it is timeless, isn't it? It is seamless, it is timeless, it transcends culture and time, doesn't it? With regard to the fact that God's Word does not change. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 119, 89.
He said, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. The idea is that God's word just doesn't change. It doesn't change, nor does the Lord change. That's what Malachi wrote in Malachi chapter 3. And then there's a fourth thing, and that has to do with the fact that the scriptures are imperishable. Down through time, many people have tried to the best of their ability to destroy, eradicate the world with regard to the Word of God. It's not possible. Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 40 at verse 8, The Word of our God endures forever. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 in about verse 35? Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my Word shall not pass away. And then I think about Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter in, in the long ago talked about the incorruptible Word by which we are born again. He said we're born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. By the Word of God, listen to him, which lives and abides forever. So God's Word is imperishable. Now what I want us to do is think in the second place about the aim or objective of Scripture. Now listen to what Paul said in the long ago. All Scripture, every Scripture, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. I want you to think about that for a moment. Paul said that God's Word is profitable to those of us who belong to the human family. Now, it came to us from the Creator. And God recognized that we needed revelation. We needed a guide, something to lead us safely home. And so, with regard to the profitability of Scripture... He said, it is profitable for doctrine, that is teaching, divine teaching. It is profitable for reproof, and the word reproof means to convict, to expose. It is profitable for correction. And the word correction here was used, by, was used in ancient times of those who would repair a building or repair a city. And the idea is, God's Word has the ability to correct broken lives. And then he said, it is profitable for instruction in righteousness. God's Word is a training manual. It is a discipline for life. Now note what he says. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped, for every good work. God's Word has the ability to make us whole, to make us what we ought to be in the eyes of God. What I did this past week in putting this lesson together, I put down some things that I wanted to talk about with regard to how Scripture profits us. And if you were in class Wednesday night, we went over some things that God's Word does for us. And as I began to think about what I had written down last week in light of what I put down with regard to the lesson tonight, I wanted to go back and look at what I mentioned Wednesday night because I think in some ways it's a little bit more exhaustive. And I just want to share with you some of the things that I have written down because I think really and truly when we talk about the inspired Word of God and the fact that God's Word is profitable and that it can make us complete, whole, it can make us what we ought to be in the eyes of God. Let me just share with you very quickly what I put down. If you were here in class last Wednesday night, it might be a way of re it might be uh, some 
some review here, but nonetheless, I think it's still profitable. Number one, God's Word guides us. Now, I said in our lesson, it educates us, and the idea is the same. It educates or guides us, and we are guided in all truth, aren't we? You think about what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my pathway. The Bible tells us that the world in which we live is engulfed in spiritual darkness. John wrote that in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The only thing that can bring light into a darkened world is the light of the world. And God's word is spoken of as light. And so you think about God's Word illuminating a world that is filled with darkness. And the goal is that we, would, that we would look to God's Word to guide us, as I mentioned a moment ago, safely home. Secondly, God's Word not only guides us, but it guards us. Last Sunday night, we talked about Psalm 119, 11. Your Word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is a, prote a protective device. God's Word has the ability to, to keep us where we ought to be, to keep us, really to keep us pure and holy and godly. And then thirdly, God's Word has the ability to enlighten us. You remember the psalmist in Psalm 119, 104, said, through your Word I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Think about the understanding that we gain reading and studying and meditating on the truth of Almighty God. There's a fourth benefit to this book that we call the Inspired Scripture. And that is, it convicts. God's Word has the ability to point out the problem that we have with sin, doesn't it? Just a moment ago, I read 2 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, God's Word, it exposes sin in, in our lives. It convicts us, makes us understand that we are accountable to Almighty God, that we need the Lord. And so, as you think about the convicting power of God's Word, on Pentecost Day when those people in, in, in the city of Jerusalem heard the Gospel, the Bible says they were cut, pricked to the heart. There's a fifth thing. God's Word has the ability to save us. Jesus said, you shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. God's Word, God's Word has the power to loosen sin in the lives of people. Jesus, when He said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. The Bible talks about how people who are living in sin are literally imprisoned by that way of life. And yet to hear the liberating news of the gospel, Jesus came, as He said, to set the captives free. How's He do that? By His Word, doesn't He? And so we escape the corruptions that are in the world through, as Peter said, the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. A sixth thing that God's Word has the ability to do, it critiques us. God's Word critiques how we live in this world. Sometimes we talk about constructive criticism. Not everyone likes to be criticized, and I understand that. But God's Word has the ability to shine the light of truth on our lives, doesn't it? 
It's like looking in that mirror, the mirror of God's Word that James talks about. When we look in the mirror of God's Word, it identifies what we're doing right, and it will correct us if we're doing things that are wrong. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that God's Word is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So when I evaluate Scripture, when I look at Scripture, it is a comprehensive critique, so to speak, of how I'm living here on planet Earth. There is a seventh benefit to the Word of God, and that is it comforts those of us who belong to the human family. In Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul said that, that the things that were written before time were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. How many of us have not derived comfort from going back and looking at some of the great stories of the Old Testament? This morning in our lesson, we looked at Psalm 34. Last Sunday, we looked at Psalm 61. And you think about the highs and lows of the life of David. David wasn't always on the mountaintop. There were many times in his life that he was in the valley. You can look at some of the New Testament characters. And you think about their trials and their difficulties. Paul, for example, his thorn in the flesh. And Paul said that he besought the Lord three times that that thorn in the flesh would be removed. God said, my grace is sufficient, is sufficient for you. I think God was saying to Paul, I want you to learn to trust in me and trust in me alone. And so we are comforted when we look at passages like that and remind ourselves, look, there are other people that have been where we are. There are other folks that have suffered and hurt in this world. And if they made it, then surely we can make it with regard to comfort. How many of us have not been comforted in reading, for example, John chapter 14 about heaven, the hope of heaven? Every time that we stand at the side of an open, open grave, we're looking for passages that will do what? That will comfort us, that will encourage us. That's why in John 14, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare, prepare a place for you, I'll come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In John 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus in that context said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. I understand death is a reality in the world in which we live. It is a, it is a hard, cold fact. But the beauty of Scripture is there's something beyond the world in which we live. Peter describes it as an inheritance. He said it's incorruptible, it's undefiled, it fades not away, it's reserved in heaven for you. Eighthly, the Word of God has the ability to strengthen us. God's Word strengthens or edifies us. Look at Acts chapter 20, verse 32. Listen to what Paul said. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts 20, verse 32. And listen to what Paul wrote. And now, brethren, I commend you to God, to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up. And the idea is God's word has the power to build or to strengthen the lives of those of us who belong to the family of God. Every time you read this book, 
you are gaining strength. Every time you spend, every hour you spend, every, every day that you go to this book and begin analyzing its contents and meditating upon it, you're strengthening your soul, aren't you? How are we made strong today? Diet and exercise. We're made strong spiritually. How so? By diet and exercise. Exercising our lives unto godliness. Feeding on God's Word. You remember Peter said to new Christians, desire the sincere milk of the Word that you might grow thereby. And Peter talked about growing in grace and knowledge. God's Word has the power to strengthen us in this world. And then there is a ninth important trait of God's Word. God's Word has the ability to assure us. We sing the song, Blessed Assurance. Don't you want to, don't, don't you want to feel assured in your Christian life? Don't you want to be confident that, that the things that you believe the faith that you practice. Don't you want to believe that all of the promises that are recorded in Scripture are true? Do you think God wants us to go through life hoping that, and we talk about this pie-in-the-sky hope, do you think God wants us to go through life just hoping that the promises will hold true? Or do you think that He wants us to have confidence and assurance that all of the promises that He's made in Scripture will stand the test of time? Look, if you would, at 1 John chapter 5 very quickly. Look at 1 John 5 in verse 11. Listen to what John said. This is a testimony, this is a record that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Listen to him. John said you can know that you have eternal life. That's assurance, isn't it? It's confidence. And he goes on to say, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Back up and look at chapter 2, verse 25. John said, this is the promise that He has promised us, eternal life. Now the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, it is impossible for God to lie. So if God has promised us eternal life, and if God has said this life is in His Son, and we're living in conformity to His will, we're walking in the light, do we have the assurance, the confidence of heaven? The answer is yes. It's not hope so, think so, maybe so. No wavering, no wondering. No, the promises of God are true, are they not? Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 very quickly in connection with this thought. Listen to Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. Paul said, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. Now, in light of that, he says, finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. Not to me only, but also to all who 
who have loved His appearing. Paul here is saying, look, God has not only promised me a crown, but everyone who walks in my footsteps, who lives a life of faith, they have the same assurance, the same promise of that crown of righteousness. Back up and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we think about the assurances of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul in chapter 4 contrasts the temporal transitory things of life to things eternal. And so in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul said, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, this physical body, that if this tent is destroyed, Paul said we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. All right, Paul, how did you know that? Didn't Paul say that he, received, that he received revelation from God? That he took that revelation and wrote it down in a few words? Paul, Paul was the one who wrote some 13 books in the New Testament. And Paul wrote by the inspiration of God. And Paul is saying, look, we know, we are confident, we have the assurance that if this body gives way to death, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, and he said, it is eternal in the heavens. So God's Word has the ability to assure us. God's Word also has the ability to calm and to soothe hurting hearts. How many people in our world are hurting? And more specifically, how many people in the church need comfort? How many people are filled with worry and anxiety how many people are living lives of discouragement? Many, many people in our world are hurting. Many people in the church are hurting. Many filled with anxiety, worry. And yet the remedy for that is prayer to God and the assurance of peace, the peace that passes all understanding. We're encouraged to come before the throne of grace that we might receive Grace to help, mercy as well. Hebrews 4, verse 16. We're encouraged to cast our cares on God because He cares for us. So we find, we find comfort for troubled hearts. The Bible calms troubled hearts. And then the 11th thing that I would share with you, God's Word has the ability to help us in the relationships of life. I don't have time to expand upon this, but I would encourage you to read Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul talks about the husband-wife relationship. In Ephesians chapter 6, he talks about the parent-child relationship. The relationships that we sustain in this life are very important. He talks about the servant-master relationship. We could make application to the employer-employee relationship. The Bible talks about how it's more blessed to give than to receive. The Bible talks about how the golden rule, Matthew 7, verse 14, or rather Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, if invoked in our lives, would better the world in which we live. Look, God's Word is all sufficient, isn't it? The Bible tells us that God has given us unto us everything that we need for life and godliness. Everything necessary to live a whole, a complete life has been given in this book. 
And so the question is, are we willing to live by it? Are we willing to honor the teaching of Scripture? Tonight I want to encourage you, if you're not a Christian, to come to Christ, to believe that Jesus Christ is the divine Son of God. There are a lot of things that we can know about Jesus from history, but we learn about His deity through this book that we call the Bible. I think about Jesus saying, The law came by Moses, John recorded this, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. He is the divine Son of God. If you believe that tonight, and you would be willing to turn from a life of sin through repentance, confess His name before others, be baptized into Christ, God will add you to the church. All your sins will be washed away. You'll live in hope of life eternal. If you're here tonight, and for whatever reason you're not faithful to His cause, and you need the prayers of the church, we'd love to pray with you and for you tonight, and God will abundantly pardon. If tonight you're here and you need the prayers of the church because of struggles, and trials in your life as a family, we'd be happy to pray for you. Again, you think about the church as the family of God. We have the opportunity to pray for one another, with one another, and tonight we'd be happy to do that with you as we stand and sing.